Turn with me this morning to Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to read again the first nine verses. And this will probably be the last time that we read these nine verses in connection with this series of expository messages in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. Let's hear the word of the Lord, reading, of course, from verse 1. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Eodius and beseech Synthage that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 9, and we pray that God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scripture. Now, my text this morning is taken from Philippians chapter 4 and verse 9. Paul says, Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. And my theme today is God's call to practice Paul's Christ-like example. God's call to practice Paul's Christ-like example. Now remember we have described Philippians 4 as one of the most pastoral, personal, and practical sections of the Holy Epistle. As Paul draws his letter to the whole church at Philippi to a close, he issued a series of general exhortations, a series of general commands to every believer in the church. Chapter 4, verse 1, there was a call to be honorable as men and women who profess the name of Christ. Think of these words, stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. In other words, don't quit your post. Don't quit your station in the Christian life. Stay true to Christ. The second exhortation was a call to be humble, to display a true spirit of Christian unity. Remember, don't let your disagreements ever become so divisive that it breeds disunity in the house of God and breaks up the fellowship. The third exhortation was a call to be hard workers. Remember, every true believer is a laborer in the work of God. Philippians 4 verse 3, there's to be no loafers, as the late Dr. Paisley used to say. Philippians 4 and 4, the fourth exhortation, is a call to true happiness. No one experienced the joy of the Lord in your heart and mind. 
Cultivate a true spirit of Christian contentment. Remember, this is a command. Even in the midst of trials and tears, it's not a cruel joke. It's not something to mock us. Because the joy of the Lord can be cultivated and experienced. Why? Because it's the very joy of the Lord who is our strength. Nehemiah 8 and 10. Philippians 4 verse 5 was the fifth exhortation. It was a call to be holy in living out the gospel. Remember we said the word for moderation means your reputation, your your testimony. And the testimony, of course, of every Christian is a valuable thing. It has to be a verbal thing. And also it has to be visualized. And we'll see that, no doubt, in the week of testimonies that we're having. And then, of course, in Philippians 4, verses 6 to 7, you had a call to hear God's answer to worry. Aren't we so often full of fear and anxiety and worries? We live in a world of sin and trouble, a world full of cares and problems. And, and, and how can we be spiritually healthy? Well, well, here's the answer. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And then in Philippians 4 verse 8, we have a call to be spiritually healthy in the sense that we're to strive to win the battle for our mind. And we preached that last week. And then now we come to what I'm calling the climactic exhortation. Philippians 4 and 9. It's a call to practice Paul's Christ-like example. See, I believe the Apostle Paul had a great concern for his fellow believers at Philippi. Remember, he's in prison. He's awaiting a death sentence. And he has issued these general exhortations because he's desirous that God's people will display genuine godliness as they live out the gospel. He's already given them a command to do with godly thinking. Think in these things, he says in verse 8. Think about the things that are just. Think about the things that are pure. Think about the things that are lovely, of good report. Things that are true and things that are honest. He wants them to think out the great truths of the gospel. The word think in verse 8 is really the key word. It means to reckon to ponder, to to meditate, give serious consideration to these six virtues. And remember that as you meditate and ponder and give serious consideration to these uh, six virtues, uh, as you concentrate on them, remember they find their fulfillment in Christ. Because in Christ you have the embodiment of things that are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report. And if you think about the application as we closed last week, it condemns all mental involvement in things that are evil. And it calls for a passionate pursuit and a constant exposure to all that is true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report. 
And having dealt with this call to be spiritually healthy, to win the battle of the mind, and we could think of how important that battle is. We thought about the ingredients. We thought about the instruction as we closed. Now here's a call not to think, but a call to do. It's a call to practice Paul's Christ-like example. Look at the words. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. Underline the word do. Because he's moving now from godly thinking to, to godly doing. We've got to remember as we think that, that we, we, we live out our life through the power of the gospel. In Philippians chapter 4 verse 9, as I have wrestled with this text all week, and found very few preachers who have actually preached on it. I've come up with three things. First of all, I see here a pattern to be adopted. Notice the words, those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me. Now, what's Paul saying here to these Philippian believers? I believe he's saying this. Model your life on me. I'm a valid model for Christ and the gospel. Remember, Paul has already revealed to them that he's a sinner who's been redeemed by the free and sovereign grace of God. Uh, he, he was one who was redeemed by the precious blood of Christ and born of the Spirit. He, 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 he is one who has walked in fellowship with Jesus Christ. He's a man of prayer. He is a man of the book. He's a missionary heart. He's got a love and a passion for souls. He's had the, the help and the joy of the Lord in the midst of his trials. And, and he's saying here, my life is a prime example of how to live out the gospel. So here's a pattern to be adopted. He's saying to them, model your life on me. Now, I don't believe Paul is boasting here. I don't believe he's making an arrogant claim. I'm not suggesting for one minute that there's any hint of pride here. He's not claiming to be sinlessly perfect. He's not saying, I don't ever sin in thought and word and deed. He's not saying, I'm better than anyone else in the church. I believe that the Apostle Paul, full of humility, full of integrity, Yet full of honesty is telling the Philippian church, is telling us to look at my life, observe and watch it carefully, how I have lived out my life among you, and then I want you, having observed and watched and lived out my life, I, I want you to follow in my footsteps. Remember, he's already told us, if you look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, it says there, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. And over in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. You see, there is such thing as the power of a godly example. 
And there was many, many models of godly example and godly living in the church at Philippi. And Paul was one of them. Here's a pattern to be adopted. Model your life on me. You see, the pastorate is not a job. It's not merely a career or a profession. Anybody that enters the ministry with the idea, I'm having a career or a profession in the ministry, I, I believe that they're on the first step to um, doom and ruin uh, because the ministry is a calling. And it's a calling to live a life of a spiritual shepherd, a spiritual pastor, before men and women. And that's what the Apostle Paul was conscious of. He's saying to them, look at my life. Listen carefully to my teaching. And what you have seen in me, in my life, then I want you to do that. And I make this promise that if you do that, then the God of peace will be with you. And the Apostle Paul, as a spiritual shepherd, was unique. It had a great impact on the then known world. And I believe that his life, as I've emphasized now three or four times, was a valid, prime example of how to live out the gospel. He's a valid pattern for all believers. You think of the churches that he pastored. Founded under God. Philippi was one of them. Ephesus. Colossae. You think of his missionary journeys. There's three of them recorded in the book of Acts. You, you think of his prayer life. You think of his love for souls. You think that he was faithful to the book and to the teaching about the blood. He, he was a man who, who loved the word of God. Like... The psalmist, he could say, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law do they meditate day and night. Did you know that 14 books of the New Testament were written by the Apostle Paul? 27 in the New Testament and 14 of them? That's over half were written by this great man of God, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this man is looked upon as one of the great thinkers and great theologians of the New Testament. I want you to look at the words that he used. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me. Now we'll pause there. You see, when I read some commentaries, they just informed me those words are all synonyms. They, they all mean the same thing. But then I thought, well, the Holy Spirit chooses the words of the Bible. And the Holy Spirit is choosing four different words. Those things which you have both learned, that's one word. Received, there's the second word. And heard, there's the third word. And seen in me, there's the fourth word. So they're not just synonyms. Paul's not just multiplying words for the sake of words. These words have meaning. Now listen to me carefully. In this pattern to be adopted, keep it in mind that Paul is a valid pattern of, of a godly lifestyle for every believer. The word learned means to learn in an attentive way. To be taught in such a way as to acquire or a form a habit. Paul's a public teacher. Paul's a, a private teacher. He gave out instruction. 
He gave how to in all the matters of the Christian life. Here's how to study the scriptures. Here's how to pray. Here's how to say no to sin. Here's how to be a good husband, a good wife, a good mother, a good young person, a good boy or a girl. It was as if he brought them into the classroom. And it was as if he gave them live demonstrations in the classroom. And it was as if he took them out of the classroom into a field trip. He gave them constantly faithful instruction. In other words, he taught them in such a way that they became attentive to those things that Paul was speaking. And they received them in such a manner that they acquired them for themselves and they formed good habitual practices from them. And that's what the word learned means. I can remember uh, being in French class in school many, many years ago. And um, I have to be honest, this was me in the French class. I was learning. I was tired. I, I didn't want to learn French, and I never learned French. And other people in the class, they, they reveled in the subject. And of course, don't you get that in the classroom? Even in live demonstrations, there's some really interested that they're wanting to learn. On a field trip, they, they want to learn all the little snippets of information that they can. And others are just there. They're not using their mind. And they're not really desirous to learn. And, and, and Paul is saying those things which you have learned from me. Notice the word received. What did they receive from Paul? Well, I believe they received the great truths of the gospel. Remember he says in verse um, 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. You see, the gospel starts with God. Paul introduced them to the doctrine of who God is. The gospel is God's remedy for human sinfulness. So he dealt with the subject of human sinfulness. The gospel centers in the personal work of Christ. So he, he talked about the incarnation of Christ. How God was manifest in the flesh, the virgin birth of Christ. He, he would talk about the sinless life of Christ. He would have talked about the blood atonement of Christ, his death on the cross. He talked about his bodily resurrection, literally, tangibly, visibly. He talked about his ascension to God's right hand, his, his life of intercession as a high priest in heaven. He talked about his second coming. See, the gospel, as far as Paul preached, was a summons to repent and believe the gospel. He said, repent ye and be converted, that your sins might be blotted out. Repentance and faith is an integral part of the gospel. The gospel is a summons to a life of obedience and worship and love and service of God. It's, it's putting God first. The gospel is a message of deliverance from sin and its eternal consequences. The, message, the gospel is a message of, about heaven and home. And that's what they received. That's what Paul had taught them. They received it with meekness. Paul was faithful. He, he passed it on. He, he was a, a, a faithful teacher. Think of the word heard 
What does that mean? Well, that was what others were saying about Paul. What were they saying about Paul? Oh, he's a saved man. He's got a testimony. That that testimony was visualized and verbalized. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Are you here this morning? Are you a saved man? Have you a testimony to the saving and keeping power of the Lord? Paul was a sound man. He was true. He was good. He, he was humble. Paul was a sanctified man. He hated sin and he loved righteousness. Paul was a supplicating man. They could listen to him praying. Not only privately but publicly. Paul was a serving man. Look at what he's doing for God. Here he is in prison and he's thinking of this church in Philippi that he founded. And he's writing them a letter to encourage them. And he wants them to be joyful in their trials and in their tears. He's also a sacrificial man. He wasn't living for self after he got saved. He was living for the Savior. He said, for me to live as Christ. That's the motto of his life. And to die. Well, well that's again. And everything that the people had heard, they, they talked about. This was the report from others. Those things that you've heard about me and Philippi, that's what I want you to think about. And then think of the word seen. There was times Paul spent in their presence. And they discovered this man practices what he preaches. He not only preached it, but he practiced it. And what he was in the pulpit that's what he was privately in the home. He, he, he was not uh, living for the Lord on a Sunday and a devil-like character the rest of the week. He was not a pretender, young people. He, he was not a hypocrite. He was not making a claim to something. He was not saying something and not showing it. He wasn't talking the talk without walking the walk. And the two go together. If we're going to talk the talk, there has to be the walking of the walk. Remember what the Apostle James was able to say um, over there in his uh, epistle. Uh, he, he said in James chapter 2 and in the uh, verse um, uh, 14, he says, What doth it profit my brethren, though a man say he hath faith? That makes a claim. I claim to be saved. I claim to have saving faith and have not works. No evidence to accompany that. Can, can faith save him? No, because that is a dead, lifeless, spurious kind of faith. It's not real, true, saving faith. Because the faith that saves is the faith that is seen in the life. Here's the Apostle Paul. And he has a valid pattern to set before us. And he wants us to follow that pattern. He wants to, to embrace it. Oh, that we could learn this, that individuals are looking at us. They're listening to our conversation. That they're watching us. And you see, as pastor, then I'm, I'm conscious of the young believers in the church. Older men should be conscious of the younger men. Aged women should be conscious of the uh, younger women. Uh, parents should be conscious of their children. The elders and the deacons are conscious of the members of the church. Why? Because we all have an example, the power of a godly example. Uh, and it can have such an impact in the life and witness of the church. Remember what um, the uh, apostle um, Paul wrote to Titus. He, he said, but speak thou the things which become some doctrine. That the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. 
The aged women likewise, that they be in behaviors, become of holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Listen, verse 4, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. You see, it's all there. The aged man, the aged woman, the young woman, the young man, the, the, the pastor. In other words, it's having an impact through a verbal, visualized testimony. Do we take our example before men seriously? Do I? We must lead by example. Very quickly. There's a valid precept here to be appropriated, not just a pattern to be adopted. Look at this word do. I would love you to circle that word or underline that word because that word means practice. And it's a present imperative verb in the Greek. And Paul is saying those things which you've both learned in the classroom by me that have become your habitual habits and those things that you received, the great truths of the gospel, all the revelation of God in Christ, and those things that you've heard about me as a man living out the gospel, and those things that you've seen for yourselves by your own eyes, those are the things that I want you to put into practice in your lives. And that's the force of that we word do. It's a call to a constant, continual performance of these things. Not only are you to think in these things, but I want you to do these things. Remember, they go together. Right thinking leads to right living. Right believing is rooted in right behavior. The things that are true, the things that are honest, the things that are just, the things that are pure, the things that are lovely, the things that are good report... We're not just to think in these things, but we're to do them. This is a clear call to do something. Not just to believe, but we've got to behave. There's a progression from verse 8 to verse 9. We've got to act on those things that God has set before us. And we act in such a way that we constantly and consciously give ourselves to godly living as we give out the gospel. And this call to godly living, this call to holiness is against the backcloth of tears and trials, against the backcloth of fear and worry and anxiety. You see, I believe a, a life of practical godliness will be the permanent portion of every true minister of the gospel as well as every true believer. See, see, the true minister of the gospel must be consumed with the vision of Christ and his person and work. The true believer in the gospel must be consumed with the vision of Christ and his person and work. We could ask the question this morning, why did Christ die? And I could give you the full Bible answer, but I'm not. I'm only going to give you one little snippet. Remember in Ephesians 1 and verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. 
and without blame before him in love. And over in Titus, it says in chapter 2, verse 14, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Why did Jesus Christ die? He gave himself for us on the cross and shed his blood that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. See, believing in Christ has a bearing on our conduct. If he has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy, and if Christ died in the tree that to redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a people zealous of good works, and the good works become the fruit of our true conversion experience. The Bible exhorts us, exercise thyself unto godliness. The motto of the Christian is holiness unto the Lord, and that becomes a permanent part of the lifestyle, not only of every true minister of the gospel, but every true born-again believer. We've got to ask ourselves this morning, am I giving due place and space to the exercise of practical holiness and godliness in my life? By my lifestyle, by what I have learned, by what I have received, by what I have heard, by what I have seen. Isn't there so many professions today? People make a claim to being a Christian. What is a Christian? A Christian is a little Christ. And yet so many who make the claim to be little Christ seem to be devoid of reality when it comes to practical godliness and true holiness. And many young people, of course, can see that inconsistency, see that spirit of hypocrisy, see, see the lack of integrity. And, and then they just brand those that make the claim as being hypocritical and, and it, it keeps them outside the, the, the door of the church. Here's the Apostle Paul. And he gives this word, do. This call to constant continual performance of godliness and holiness. Remember how God used Paul in prison to spread the gospel? Chapter 1 and verse 12, But I would you should understand, brethren, the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. See, see Paul, Paul, he thought about the sovereignty of God at work in his trials. God is using this to glorify himself and, and to help the spread of the gospel. Paul, in the face of death, was confident in Christ. Remember, he said, for me to live as Christ and to, to die as gain. And, and how his confidence in the face of death ha, has inspired others in the midst of persecution to, to stay true to Christ. Remember, he used in chapter 2 the illustration of the self-sacrifice of Christ. And it not only inspired others, but it inspired Paul to live a life of self-sacrifice unto Christ. Paul adopted the mind of Christ. He had a true spirit of humility uh, before God. He, he humbled himself under the mighty hand of God, desiring to be exalted in due season. He didn't boast in works righteousness. 
He didn't say, I'm saved by my religion or my race or my ritual. He, he, he realized that, that his righteousness counted as nothing in the sight of God. And, and, and therefore, he's a great example of having faith in Christ and in, in, in embracing Christ's righteousness. We could add to that his faithfulness in prayer, his faithfulness in his attitude to the scriptures, his love for the word, the day of God, the name of God, the honor of God, the, the, the faithfulness that he adopted in this mindset of godly living, of hating sin and loving righteousness. This, this holiness unto the Lord mindset. It's all here in this little word do. A valid precept to be appropriated. If I substitute the word do and put practice, that's what it means. These things which you've both learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice constantly, continuously, habitually put into practice. So do you see the connection between thinking and doing? One final thing this morning. There's a valid promise to be accepted. Notice these words, and the God of peace shall be with you. Now, isn't that a lovely title this morning? The God of peace. God's a lot of things. And there's many attributes, natural to God and moral attributes that we could think about today. God is jealous for his name. God is long-suffering, slow to anger. God's a God of wrath. He's a God of compassion and love. He's a God who is sovereign uh, and a God who is good and uh, uh, so so many other things. But he's also called the God of peace. Not only the God of love, but he's the God of peace. Listen to these words over there in Romans chapter 15 and in the verse uh, 33. Let me just bring out a couple of references that the Apostle Paul used in relation to the God of peace. In Romans chapter 15, verse 33, he says, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Think about that. that, that, that's, that that's, that's really what he is saying. Um, uh, think about that. And over there in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 11, uh, and in the verse... Uh, 13, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and in the verse 13, we've got the same reference. Listen to what he says there. Um, 2 Corinthians 11, um, no, that's the wrong reference. Sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, 23, I must have wrote the reference down wrong. 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, And verse 23, this is what he says. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and the verse 16, he says, Now the God of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. Isn't this A tremendous statement. The God of peace. Why did he use this term, the God of peace? I wonder if there was those in Philippi who were not enjoying the Lord as he ought. 
I wonder if there's those in Philippi who were not knowing and experiencing the fact that God is the God of peace was with them. And I wonder, was that because they were living so shallow a life? that they had forgotten to set the godly example of Paul's life before them and be imitators of him in as far as he was a follower of Christ? Is it possible that there were some in Philippi who had no real desire for holiness, that there was a failure in their lives to pursue godliness, and there was a weakness of spirit, they, they had no desire uh, for, for practical godliness in their heart and mind, and therefore because of that lack, because of that failure, they were not really enjoying the Lord as they ought. And they didn't know him as the God of peace. And there was just a, a meager, begrudging kind of Christian life. I want to say this morning, the God of peace can be a reality to you. Not only peace with God, and that's important, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have peace with God this morning? Only you can answer that. Are you saved? Are you in Christ? Have you trusted Christ as Lord and Savior? Has he come as a sinner and cried out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner? For, for that's where the Christian life really starts, isn't it? And not only do you know peace with God, but you can know the peace of God. And we've already preached in that, in God's answer to worry. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. But this is more than that. This is the God of peace with you. In the storms of life, in the day of difficulty, when your world falls apart, when you're in financial woe and relationships break down and, and you're in a state of turmoil and you don't know what to do, you can know the reality of this experience and the God of peace being with you. Can I tell you this morning, to me this is one of life's greatest blessings, to know that the Lord is with you in the onward march of life. And when the Lord is with you, he is with you as the God of peace who can give you safety, who can give you certainty and give you enjoyment because that's the meaning of the word peace in your life, even in the midst of all you experience. Paul says, those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do and the God of peace shall be with you. In other words, it's conditional. And that's why I said so many of God's people don't experience this, know the reality of the God of peace being with them, because they haven't the desire and the quest for holiness and godliness of life that they ought to have. A valid promise to be accepted. May the Lord help us to give ourselves to the exercise of godliness. May the Lord help us to adopt the motto of holiness unto the Lord and know the reality of the God of peace being with us. May the Lord take these few stumbling words and bless them to us this morning.